Right, good evening and thank you all very much for coming. I'm Janet Hunter. I'm the Deputy Director of SICKERD and also in the Economic History Department. It's a great honour and pleasure to be chairing this Michio Morishima lecture. Michio Morishima, who died in 2004, was for many years Sir John Hicks Professor of Economics at LSE. A distinguished economist and econometrician, his work will no doubt be familiar to the economists in this audience. He was also a public intellectual in his native Japan, a person whose books reached a mass audience and where he is still regarded as the closest a Japanese citizen has come to being awarded a Nobel Prize in economics. For those of us in Stickerd, however, he was also an institution builder. As Stickerd, the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines, was founded in 1978 through endowments from the Suntory and Toyota companies negotiated by Michio. He shaped Stickerd's organization and objectives and acted as its inaugural director. His ideals live on in our ongoing research programs in a range of economics-related areas and our ability to function as a source of funding for initiatives across the school. This lecture series is one way in which Stickerd has sought to commemorate these wide-ranging contributions. The inaugural Michio Morishima lecture was given by Professor Amartya Sen in 2006. And since then, we have had a succession of brilliant economists talking about a wide range of issues. In Professor Sendhil Mulanathan, it would be hard to find a more appropriate addition to that list of highly distinguished speakers. Professor Mulanathan is a professor of economics at Harvard. He is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award and is the co-founder of Ideas 42, a non-profit organization that applies the insights of behavioral science to find innovative solutions to social problems. He is also one of the co-founders of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, which promotes the use of randomized control trials in development and the alleviation of poverty. Sendiel's research has brought new insights into many areas, ranging from CEO pay to racial discrimination in labor markets and media bias. His most recent research combines the latest advances in economics and psychology to examine the effect of scarcity on decision-making in various settings from sugarcane fields to the so-called C-suite of top executives. The breadth of Professor Mullanathan's research makes him particularly suited to deliver a Morishima lecture. Stickerd itself has wide-ranging strengths in many areas, and Professor Mullanathan's insights have made a conspicuous contribution to Stickerd work in development and in the study of organization and public policy. Professor Morishima's own approach to economics was increasingly an interdisciplinary one, and he would, I am sure, have applauded our speaker's willingness to venture across disciplines and take a broad view of economics, as well as the commitment to addressing pressing issues of poverty and social policy. May I therefore ask you to welcome Professor Mulainathan to give this year's Michio Morishima Lecture. All right. Can you guys hear me? Is this good? Okay. So this is... Um, <clears throat> I'm going to be talking primarily about... Um, work I've done with Eldar Shafir uh, in a book we wrote uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, I don't quite understand why the bunny has a 
has uh, the turtle has a rocket on top of it. I don't know what that means, so please don't ask me. Um, I, I often thought this must have been the reject cover for Thinking Fast and Slow. They just felt like, wow, we got one left over. We might as well use it somewhere. Um, uh, this, but I'll, some of the work I'll present is with other collaborators, and some of it is material not in the book, but mostly it's in the book. So let me start off with, the, with the, a story. The story is in some ways the genesis of the book. Um, this happened at a time in my life uh, when I was rushing around and felt I had entirely too much to do. I was sort of almost flabbergasted. Uh, I was uh, coming late to meetings, some meetings I'd managed to forget, um, and I just felt like the projects were piling on. There were things and things to get done, and I was falling further and further behind. I found this picture on the web. This is actually a real thing that somebody did. You can actually, you have balanced all of these coins. And somewhere in my to-do list felt like this precariously balanced set of coins that at any moment the entire structure could fall apart, but through some miracle of physics, in this case temporal physics, it was all being held together. Uh, perhaps the best example of this was in Massachusetts, we have this thing called an inspection sticker where you need to get your car inspected every year. I, I think I suspect that's just a way for Massachusetts to make money. I don't know what they're quite inspecting, uh, but they inspect it. And if you don't have this sticker inspected, uh, it meant that you would be pulled over and get a big ticket. Of course, this inspection sticker just meant one more to-do item on my to-do list of life. Uh, and of course, it's one more to-do item that I had not yet done. And this meant that I found myself driving to work in this very... I always pictured if somebody could take a video camera of it from above, they'd see this little ant going straight and all of a sudden take a right turn for no particular reason and then go around this way. And that's because this little ant, being me, had seen a cop and was worried, oh, the cop might see the inspection sticker, better turn. Minutes and minutes were wasted, hours were wasted in this pointless activity when I could just have gotten this done. In fact, <clears throat> life felt a little bit like this cartoon. And maybe the most salient moment of life at this point was that I, would even, I couldn't even think about my mother's face because I would be thinking, oh my God, I haven't called her in a long time. So at this moment, I said to myself, okay, I called Eldar. I said, I have a plan. Here it is. I'm going to get out of this mess. The way I'm going to get out of this mess is very straightforward. I'm going to say no to every new obligation. And then I'm going to pay, and I'm going to do everything I need to do, clear out my to-do list, and be much more judicious in what I say yes to. And it felt like a very good plan because it would get me out of the problem, felt doable. After all, how hard was it to say no? And apparently a week later I called him and said, oh, there's this really good idea I had, let's work on that. <laughs> he claims without any irony in my voice. I'd like to think I have some self-awareness. So put that in one bin, foolish me. Now let me tell you about someone else, totally different. This is a um, fruit vendor, the type of person you might see in any developing country. The fruit vendor's business model is very simple. She gets up in the morning, she goes, she buys a bunch of fruit, comes back, sells them. She might buy 1,000 rupees of fruit in a day, sell them for 1,100 rupees. 100 rupees gross profit. Her entire business model is seen here. Her capital, nobody owns this land, it's public land, the crates cost nothing. The only capital she has is her human capital and the money needed to buy the fruits, those 1,000 rupees. You might ask, where does that money come from? For some women, the money, they have it. That's part of their capital they own. But for a large percentage of women, they borrow the money. They borrow it from the same place where they go to buy the fruits. There's usually a person there who'll give them a loan for 1,000 rupees. They pay it back that evening. And the interest rate is about 5% per day. So 1,000 rupees, 50 rupees goes to interest in that day. Half of her profits 
are going to just paying off this interest. There's something interesting about this. You might say, how do I get into that business? You can figure that out on your own. Uh, But you could also ask, why does she do this? Why does she continue to borrow? Couldn't she simply just get out of this debt trap? And it is a debt trap. She's so indebted, half of her money is going to paying off the old to debt to pay the debt. What if she were just to put aside five rupees a day? She could save her way up. And it's not like she doesn't have the ability to do it. Every day she might buy a dosa. This is a, a delicious South Indian. You guys must all know what a dosa is. Please just nod your head. I don't, don't want to. It's just pretend for my sake. So she, she buys this. This is a treat. There's cheaper, more nutritious way to get it. It's a treat. She could cut back. Don't buy the dosa. Save five rupees. You save five rupees. How long will it take for her to get to, get to a thousand rupees? Any guesses? Yes, yes. This is a mathematically inclined crowd. <laughs> and you're still wrong. It's not 200 days. Because you've forgotten the most basic principle of compounding. Because every five rupees she saves is five rupees she didn't borrow at 5% a day. In fact, in 40 days, she will be debt-free. That's what 5% a day compounds at. It's really fast. So here she is, trapped in a debt trap, where she, out of her own choices, is kind of stuck there. Now, you'll, hopefully you'll see there's a similarity between these two. And that's what struck me. You could argue she's stuck in a money debt trap, and I was stuck in a time debt trap. After all, what are the obligations we have, all the to-dos we have, but borrowing that we've undertaken? When we agreed to say yes to something, we are getting a little spurt of yes now and taking on a time debt. And like me, she had choices that she could have undertaken to get herself out of this money debt trap, and she didn't do it. And so here we are, symmetrically stuck in two debt traps. And it makes you wonder, is this just a superficial similarity? And when you start to look, there's a lot more similarities between the money poor and the time poor. They actually behave in similar ways. For example, the money poor are often late paying bills. The time poor are often late turning stuff in. The money poor are often doing things like, when you look at the data, they'll go out and they'll buy things, luxuries that they can't afford. For the time poor, people often say, if you're so busy, why are you playing Angry Birds right now? (laughs) There are also more important things that are not about bad behaviors. Imagine that you're the woman I just showed you, and your child comes home and has done very well in school, and you would like to buy that child a gift. That's the most basic of human things. But that most basic human desire goes from being a basic good to suddenly becoming a luxury. Can you afford that? Can you afford that gift? Imagine you're very busy and your child has done very well in school and there's a reception in school to honor the kid. Now that basic activity of going and spending two hours on that suddenly feels like a luxury. There are all of these similarities between money poverty and time poverty that led me to wonder at this point, is there a deeper connection? Uh, you'd be very surprised if I said no right at this point. It's a bit of a build-up for no reason. Um, oh, I should do that one day. No, I'm done. Thank you. Um, the, and I want to argue today that there is a deeper connection. That deeper connection is, surprise, the psychology of scarcity. That when we have too little, I'm going to try and argue to you, there's a very basic psychological force that kicks in. That force, once we understand it, will help, help us understand why people borrow, 
but also will help us understand a wide variety of other behaviors when we have very little. And that's what I want to tell you about. And to understand the psychology of scarcity, I want to go back to an experiment that was run a long time ago. This was in the 1940s. And um, <clears throat> there was this war going on at the time, which you may have heard of. And in that war, uh, the Allies were recapturing a lot of territory. This was 1943. And the Allies were starting to get people who had been at the edge of starvation for quite some time. And so they wanted to know, quite smartly, for the military, they said, what do we do with these people? I mean, we have the food to feed them, but do we just give them all the food they want to eat? Or do we say, no, ration it out? Pretty good question if you think about it. You know, they may, they may gorge themselves into being sick. So they went to the researchers of their time, and the researchers said, what a good question. We don't know the answer, but let us run an experiment and we can tell you. So apparently some things haven't changed. That playbook is pretty good. And so that was born the first experiment. Now the experiment was run in Minnesota. About 28, 30 able-bodied men volunteered. Uh, here's one such man. Uh, I bet you didn't expect to see this when you walked in this room. Uh, I'll, there's a, later there's a picture of me in a similar profile, so some, something to keep look forward to. And uh, this man... <clears throat> What the, turns out the way they were going to try and figure out how to refeed people was that the experiment involved first, as you might imagine, how do you run an experiment on refeeding? First, you starve people. So this is this man partway through starvation. Still looks pretty happy. Uh, and most of what we know, not about refeeding, that turned out to be less interesting, most of what we know about hunger comes from this study, at least the genesis of it is from this study. It was called the hunger experiment. There are these many, many volumes that have been written about it. The hunger experiment taught us a lot about one very particular form of scarcity, not having enough food. And there are things specific to that that are just interesting, for example, things we didn't know. Like looking at this picture, you could tell someone who looks like this is only partway through the study, or only partway through starvation. Can you guys see how? Well, it turns out that when you starve somebody, their weight drops. That's not a surprise. But then, as you keep starving them, their weight increases. Because their stomach starts retaining water. And you can tell his stomach is not retaining water. So he's only partway starving. That's kind of interesting stuff. There's some gruesome details about starvation that you learn. For example, we never realized until the study how much starvation really deteriorates muscles. So the men in the study could no longer shampoo their hair because they couldn't lift their, their hands above their heads. We also learned a lot about the psychology of, uh, of hunger, though that wasn't necessarily what they set out to study, but it was in a lot of the qualitative notes. So some of it is kind of obvious. Uh, one of it is the reason why you don't want to be around your spouse or significant other when they haven't eaten, which is that uh, people get very cranky when they get hungry. These men are not happy despite this picture. Uh, there are more subtle lessons, which is the point of the talk today. So one subtle lesson happened in an experience that one of the researchers described. At this time, they would take these men on Friday, after, Friday evenings to watch a movie. And all the men would sit in the small Minnesota town movie theater. They would sit in the corner. The rest of the town would sit everywhere else, and they would watch these movies. They were inevitably romantic comedies, because that's what people made back then. And the researcher was puzzled by one thing that he saw. Whenever there was a, a punchline, a comedic reveal, the men would laugh, everyone else would laugh, that'd be fine. But every once in a while, the men would just sit stony silent when the punchline was given, while everybody else in the theater laughed. 
The researcher found this odd, because it's not like they lacked a sense of humor, they were laughing at everything else. Why these instances? Why these events? What was unfunny about these jokes? And slowly the researcher pieced it together. Whenever there was food in the scene, the men literally did not hear the punchline. All they saw was the food. That's something to think about. All they saw was the food. About, 80, about 60, 70 years later, there have been studies that have shown that this process is happening at a very basic primitive psychological level, at the level of milliseconds. So I'll show you one such study. In this study, what they did was they, they told subjects to come to the lab, and before coming to the lab, don't drink any water for 8 to 10 hours. So sh- subjects showed up thirsty. And then half the subjects, they gave them water. This is product placement. I'm paid by design. Half the subjects, they gave them water. And the other half, they gave them pretzels. This is part of what makes psychology so enjoyable. It's basically an excuse to torture people, as far as I can tell. So now you had some very thirsty subjects. Every time I give this part of the talk, I really, I need water. (laughs) Now you got some very thirsty subjects, not me, and some totally sated subjects. This is a different form of scarcity. It's not like the other one. It didn't take months to induce. This just took hours to induce. And now, they did a test. They did a test on these subjects called the lexical decision task. The lexical decision task is very simple. Letters will appear on a screen, such as these letters. And you put a button if if those sequence of letters is a word. This appears, word or not word. And this appears, that's a word. And so on. And we continue in this way. Obviously, it's not much of a test. Even my undergraduates could get that uh, without cheating. Uh, Though they probably would, just for fun. Um, But what it is, is it's a test not about whether you get it right, but about your reaction time. It turns out that some things you react much more quickly to. And that's what they found in this study. The word chair, for example, both the Thirsty and non-thirsty subjects responded at the same rate. They found the word chair as quickly and saw that it was a word. The word soda, on the other hand, the thirsty subjects saw much more quickly. And you'll notice the connection. Same word with the word water. The thirsty subjects immediately had their attention captured by things involving thirst. Much like the, the men in the Minnesota hunger study had their attention immediately captured by things involving hunger. This is the basic hypothesis I want to tell you today, that at some very primitive level, the psychology of scarcity is very trivial, that our attention is captured by those things that we lack. The hungry are captured, captivated by things involving food. The thirsty are captivated by things involving water and thirst. And at these physiological things, you can see why this would make sense. If you were designing an animal brain, you could imagine wanting a little sensor that says to the animal, hey, we're hungry. You might want to do something about that. And no matter what, that sensor keeps going off. It says, hey, I don't know if you've gotten my other messages. We're hungry. Hey, did you notice that piece of food over there? That might be interesting for you, because we're hungry. This very primitive capture process, I want to tell you, is universal to all these forms of scarcity. And it can help us unpack why we behave the way we do. It's actually a very simple process. And the two features of it I want to tell you are, first, that it involves a need, and second, that it's automatic. It's not a choice. The men in the Minnesota Hunger Study did not say, you know what I would like to do right now? Think about food. That would be a lot of fun. That's not what they did. They had their minds captivated 
by the thing they lacked. Captured. And so keep those things in mind. I'm going to give you an example from time scarcity since I started off with that. Think about the last experience that you had when you were most productive. When you just felt like, wow, I'm getting a lot of stuff done. I'm willing to bet there's a defining feature of that moment. That there was a deadline. Is that fair to say? Would we all agree with that? Yes. That's interesting, isn't it? And just introspect about why you were so productive on deadline. When there's no deadline, you sit down at your computer, you say, I'm going to work. You start working. Then you say, hmm, maybe I should go to ESPN for a few minutes. I mean, just for a few minutes. And then I'll get back to work. You go on the ESPN. Before you know it, it's been 30 minutes. You go back to start working. And you say, oh, wait, email. You're constantly, and before you know it, it's lunchtime. And then the thing goes on. When there's a deadline, think of how you work. You sit down to work. Other things don't even capture your attention. You don't even, maybe you think about ESPN. Maybe you don't even think about ESPN. You are like locked in. You are like focused. This is the essential psychology of scarcity. And this is why it's such a good thing. And this is, the, this is the beginning of, I think, why we be, respond to scarcity the way we do. It's actually a good thing at some primitive level to focus on the thing that you lack. After all, that's advantageous. When there is a deadline, it's advantageous to really focus on getting the shit done. What this means is, it means that actually, though I started with the negative consequences of scarcity, there ought to be some positive consequences. Let me tell you one such study that shows a positive consequence. This is a taxi meter in Boston. When you get in, there's a fare. There's a number it starts at. And so think about that. Think about what number does the taxi meter start at. I think the meters here also start at some number. So just think about what is that number? OK, so we just ask people that question. What is that number? And here's the percentage of people who got the answer right, who were poor and who were rich. The rich don't know what that number is. Even though, guess who takes taxis much, much more? The rich. The poor, who rarely take taxis, know the prices of things much, much more. They're highly attuned to money. This is an interesting thing, because even though we tend to think of poverty as having these negative consequences, obviously here you see the attentional capture having a very positive consequence. Let me tell you another example of this, which we saw in a recent study. So this is a classic, classic behavioral economics finding. So let me see if it works on you. So suppose you're going to go buy a, you see, look how I, I put 100 pounds. That was pretty good. Took me a long time to find that on my computer. <laughs> I assume that's the pound symbol. Please don't tell me if it's not. I don't want to know. Uh, now that I've said it, I do want to know. All right, I'll ask Nava afterwards. So you're going to go buy a 100 pound iPod. And when you're about to buy it, the um, person at the counter says, hey, you know, we have a sale at our other branch. And it's on sale at this other branch for 75 pounds. And the branch is only 30 minutes away. Would you do it? Think about in your own mind, would you go or not? Okay? Many of you would. Okay. Except for the rest of you who are saying no and the people around you hate you. Now imagine another day when you're going to go buy an 800-pound MacBook. Now, about to buy it, the person at the store says, hey, this is on sale at the other branch for 775 pounds. It's 30 minutes away. Would you do it now? No. If you introspect, you've done this many times in your life. 
And that's what the data shows. If you show this to people, you find that for $800 or 800 pounds, people won't go very often, but, for, uh, but on 100, they will. Now, this is both highly intuitive. After all, 25% savings in one and some other number that I can't quite compute, but a much smaller percentage in the other one. And so why would you do it? On the other hand, it violates the most basic precepts of economic rationality, because what's the trade-off here? 25 pounds, 30 minutes. In both cases, you're saving 25 pounds for 30 minutes. That's the trade-off. Yet we can see, and this is the most robust effect you can get. You can get this with any group of people. I mean, you can just run this in any undergraduate class, MBA classes, and they will show this. And uh, just as an aside, before we talk about psychology of scarcity, this is actually one money error that many rich people or many people with abundance make a lot. And you'll see it in your own life. You spend an inordinate amount of time to save a small amount of money, but that's a high percentage of the purchase. Yet you throw away a lot of money, which is a low percentage. Like I remember when we were bargaining for our first house, it was down to only $5,000. And they were like, well, why don't we just put the difference? Because after all, why bargain for another you know, 30 minutes? 30 minutes? $2,500. I mean, my time's not worth that. Let's just keep going. This is fun. But that's not what we think. In fact, they think you're the weirdo. It's only $5,000, a small fraction of what. Think about that. So this is a very common error, one that's quite consequential. And why it happens is actually quite related to a piece of <clears throat> vision. I hope this works on the screen. I can't tell. Sometimes these things get stretched. Which circle looks bigger? The one on the right, right? So, yeah, I can't tell from the screen. Good, thank God. If the one on the right doesn't look bigger, it means you have some visual problem. <laughs> Time to see an optometrist. There's something going on. Uh, sorry to be willing to break it to you. Having said that, of course, as you might imagine, they are literally the same size. Why do they look different? They look different for a very basic psychoperceptual thing. The way we make sense of size in the world around us is by taking the items around to make sense of size. That's intuitive. And that's how it's easy to create these optical illusions. We learn how we judge size. Money is no different. How do you make sense of $20, 20 pounds, $5? You use the items around it. In the example I gave, the 25 pounds looks big next to a iPod, next to 100 pounds. But next to a very big item, it looks small. It's simply a basic piece of perception. We use relative size to establish size. Why am I telling you all this? Because the point of scarcity is that the poor already have things on their mind. They're already paying attention to a lot of things. So while for abundance, when I say money, the world looks like this to you, and it should be easy for me to frame the size of it by just putting stuff around it, for the poor, that's not what money looks like to them. What money looks like to them is, Oh, 20 pounds, as I said, a lot of things are capturing their attention. 20 pounds, oh my God, I've got grocery bills, I've got this gas thing I've got to make, I've got to deal with this credit card thing that's due, I've got my rent that's due soon. As a result, they already have things that frame the size of this object for them. This is a long, complicated way of saying, the poor know what a dollar is worth, and you don't know what a dollar is worth. So what this means is we could take this classic study and just replicate it on the poor. And what we would find is that simply surrounding this with an iPod should have no effect, like it does with these guys. And in fact, that's what we find. The poor 
show exactly the same effect in both cases. It's not like they're somehow at a ceiling. They're not always willing to travel 30 minutes. They're only about 60%. It's just it doesn't matter what I put next to it. And this is one consistent finding that we have across a lot of studies now, that in some sense, poverty is creating this form of expertise that in many ways makes the poor more rational. This would have been, I would have taught this as a behavioral economics class, I would have said this is a violation of rationality, but actually the poor look like they're more rational than you or I. Now, when I was presenting this work to my colleagues, and I said, oh, this is pretty exciting. I really think this stuff is going to be pretty interesting because we're onto the psychology of scarcity. Or sorry, we're into the science of scarcity. My colleague said to me, oh, that's very interesting. There's a, sci- there's a field that studies scarcity. You might know about it. It's called <laughs> economics. My colleagues are real jokers. And I want to tell you these examples should hopefully already make clear to you the difference between what I'm showing you and the economics of scarcity. See, the economics of scarcity is profound. It reminds us that all goods, all things, are finite in nature. That scarcity is universal in some sense, is abundant. There's only a limited amount of money, there's only a limited amount of water, there's only a limited amount of fill-in-the-blank. And it's a reminder to people that they ought to take that into account, that there are trade-offs. The psychology of scarcity, perversely, is the exact opposite. In fact, it's so much the opposite, it justifies why we even have the economics of scarcity. Let me give you an example. Suppose that you go, uh, this is Oriana's favorite cocktail, um, and suppose you go to a restaurant and you sit down, and the waiter says, we have this cocktail. Uh, Describes it to you, and you're thinking, should I buy it? What are all the things that go through your mind as you're contemplating this important trade-off in life. You might think to yourself, eh, are those the kind of ingredients I like? You might think to yourself, is the person I'm with, are they going to drink also? Or will this be another day where I drink alone? <laughs> you might think, am I driving home? Uh, but there's one thing you probably are not thinking, which is actually what poor people, when given this question, do think. To understand what that is, ask your, pretend that you're on a diet. And just think about how you, what you would think of now. You'd probably say to yourself, last time you were on a diet or if you're on a diet right now, if I have this cocktail, what will I give up? The poor, when faced with this question, say, oh, if I have this cocktail, what will I not buy? Kind of funny, isn't it? But that is essentially the economics of scarcity. The poor are thinking about the trade-off. The reason I'm telling this story is because the converse is also true. The rich are not thinking about the trade-off. It's almost absurd to say to you, you should think about the trade-off. If you go for a jog tomorrow morning and you lose 10 pounds that were in your uh, back pocket, happens to fall out while you're jogging, you might be annoyed at yourself. You might say, that was foolish. But you'd be hard-pressed to say, Here's the thing I'm not going to buy with those 10 pounds. What does that mean? And this is a sense in which I want to tell you there's a deep difference between the economics of scarcity and the psychology of scarcity. In economics, those lost 10 pounds surely must come from somewhere. But the amazing thing about the psychology of scarcity is that it can feel to us as if they come from nowhere. It's as if you have an endless supply of 10 pound or 5 pound things. 
And that's the distinction I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the fact that the psychology of scarcity in everything we've shown you is about the times when you feel like you lack very little that leads to attentional capture and that leads to all of the benefits that we just saw that the poor are actually closer to the economic ideal. They're actually thinking a lot about money. Their mind is captured by money. And in some sense, they are able to take trade-offs into account because they must take trade-offs into account. So all of that is, I think, the positive side of scarcity. But it actually doesn't answer for us why we end up with these bad accounts. Because after all, what I've told you so far, you should say, wouldn't it be great if I was poor? Seems great. Wouldn't it be great if I was busy all the time? That seems great, like if I had a deadline every day. So to understand this, I want to argue that actually the negative consequences of scarcity also come from the same force as the positive consequences. After all, what I just told you is that scarcity focuses us. It causes us to really fixate on the thing that we need to get done. So go back to your deadline. You're working really hard on deadline, and it is terrific that you're not thinking about ESPN, you're not thinking about Angry Birds, you're really focused on getting this task done. But you know what else you're not thinking about? You're also not thinking about that inspection sticker. If there's an email in your inbox that you could answer in five minutes right now and save you an hour later, you're also not thinking about that. In some sense, this is an incredible focusing effect, but it is also a tunneling effect. What scarcity does is it makes us focus on what needs to get done. But sometimes there are things that are urgent, and that's great, and we focus on those. But sometimes there are things that are important, but not urgent. And those will always fall outside the tunnel. And that's the metaphor I want to carry through. Focusing is actually tunneling. And scarcity leads to bad outcomes if the things that are negative fall outside the tunnel. So suppose you were trying to perversely take somebody who is tunneling. What would you do? You would design a product and you're trying to exploit them. You would design a product that looks very good here, inside the tunnel, and is really bad for you, but the bad stuff falls outside the tunnel. What would that product look like? Well, for the poor, you know what that product would be? It would be a loan, because let me solve your problem right now, but at a very high interest rate, because the repayment of the loan comes in the future, which is outside of the tunnel. Loans, by their very nature, borrowing by its very nature, it interfaces very badly with the psychology of scarcity. And there's a way to understand this even in the qualitative research. This is money today, repaying it tomorrow. If you go and talk to people, for example, payday borrowers. I think, I think they have payday loans in the, US, in, in the UK. So payday loans are pretty high interest rate loans. That You go talk to payday borrowers and you say to them, hey, you're taking out this loan. How do you plan to repay it? They look at you like you're a real idiot. Because they look at you like, I don't know if you've heard anything I've told you before we reached this point in the survey, but I'm telling you, I have a real fire I'm fighting. I must deal with this thing on my plate. And here you are asking me what I'm going to do about this. And why are you even asking me this? It's as if to them, they just explained to you how their house was burning down, and they're coming to this well for water, and you're saying to them, but have you thought about the sustainability of this well? <laughs> In some sense, that is both the perverse aspect of the psychology of scarcity and the power of it are all in that story. It makes total sense that they are completely fixated on dealing with the thing that they are to deal with today. That fixation is what gives the power. But that fixation is also what generates borrowing because we're fixated on solving this problem. 
and we'll do a lot of things to do it. So what I'm trying to tell you today is that scarcity leads us to tunnel, and the first negative consequence we see of it is in borrowing. So how would we prove this? Well, one way to prove this is to actually take very seriously the notion that scarcity is what's generating this. Think about what I'm saying. I'm saying that my tendency to borrow is not because I'm bad at time management. I mean, I am bad at time management, but that's a separate issue. My tendency to borrow doesn't come from that. It comes from the psychology of scarcity. I'm saying the vendor's tendency to borrow, the payday lender's tendency to borrow, doesn't come from any intrinsic traits they have, but from the psychology of scarcity. So one way to test that is we could move to a very different context. And so obviously we went to the very natural context, a family feud. Seems pretty obvious. Do you guys know what family feud is? You probably don't know what family feud is. It's not made it into British television. Oh, that is too bad. <laughs> this really is America's greatest invention. Let me tell you what Family Feud is then. Family Feud is a quiz game, whereas here you have QI. In the U.S. we have Family Feud. Where the way things work is you ask people a question. And in a typical quiz show, they would then have to give the right answer. That's a little tough for Americans, so what they decided was let's change that around. Let's instead ask that same question to 100 other people. Now we have a distribution of answers. And all you have to do is give the most popular answer from that list. Or you get points according to the most. It's a democratization of truth, if you will. <laughs> I don't know why you guys are mocking. I think it's great. Who are you to say what's true? Actually, what's funny is many family feud questions are, in fact, factual questions. Um, it's, it's, but I'll show you an example of a family feud question. You guys can play along with me. So an example is, name something Barbie could sell if she needed to raise money fast. <laughs> Go ahead, why don't you guys make some guesses? Oh! <laughs> you guys skipped over the good ones. The first is her dream car. The second is her shoes. You know what? Did someone say house? You'll all be, you said house. You'll be proud to know that house does not make the list. <laughs> That would be imprudent. Why sell such a solid asset during, to raise money fast? <laughs> Sorry? She's seven. Oh. <laughs> it turns out the number three answer, I think one of you already said, is Ken. <laughs> so you guys will do pretty well. Why am I telling you about Family Feud, other than the fact that it's more entertaining than anything I have to tell you? I'm telling you because we ran this study where we simply just had subjects play family feud round after round, answering questions like this. Yes, this wasn't a good psychology study because we didn't find some way to torture them. Uh, they simply just had to play this game. They earned money as a function of how many points they got in family feud. And each round they got a new question. That was it. Very straightforward. The only thing is we split subjects into two groups. Half of them, we gave them quite a bit of time per question. Half of them, we gave them very little time per question. We had created two castes. I guess being Indian, I shouldn't say that type of thing, but we had created two groups of people. There was the family feud rich and the family feud poor. The family feud rich had a lot of time, an abundance of time, and the family feud poor had very little time. The first finding will hardly surprise you. With more time, they did better, in the sense that they earned more points in total. So even there, we saw this focusing benefit, which is that the family feud poor actually 
their guesses were much more on target. They put a lot more time into each guess, actually. They're not more time, a lot more mental effort into each guess. So that we saw that. But being poor in our study meant you earned less because you had less time. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is then we gave them a chance to borrow. If our hypothesis is right, it doesn't matter what your form of scarcity. If I can give you that resource, you will borrow and you will overborrow. So we gave half the subjects the ability to borrow. And we, and we took a page out of the, the, the vegetable vendor's playbook, and we said, you can have an extra second in this round, but it'll cost you two seconds in future rounds. 100% interest rate. We, we, we were sure this is how we were going to get rich. I mean, I don't know what we're going to do with all these seconds, but I'm sure there's a Bitcoin somewhere that'll allow me to sell this. Um, and so now we had the family feud rich, the family feud poor, and some people who could borrow and some people who couldn't. So let me show you what we found. This is the performance of these two groups. Let's start with the, is this yellow, the yellow line. This is the no borrow condition, okay? What you find is that when you look at the rich, give them the ability to borrow, they do a little bit better. They earn more points. It's insignificant. You give the poor the ability to borrow, and all of a sudden, they do worse. And the way they do worse, they actually are hurt by borrowing in a way that the rich are not. And the way they do worse is actually very much like the vendor or like me. Here is the percentage of time in each round in this study that goes, off to, that goes to paying off prior debts. And you'll see the rich, because they don't borrow, they spend most of their time on making guesses. The poor, even though they have very little time, actually increasingly spend more and more of their time paying off prior, debt, prior, loan, prior periods borrowing. You think about it, it's striking. We sort of created arbitrary poor and rich. These people have nothing to do with the real poor and rich we know about. But they repeated the same behavior that you see amongst the real poor and amongst the real rich. And this is not about time pressure. You can redo this study, and we redo this study with other forms of scarcity. For example, we invented this game called Angry Blueberries, where there are these waffles that are going around, and you have to shoot them with these blueberries. Um, I think it's going to be a real winner. I have a, feeling, <laughs> have a really good feeling about this game. It's so fun to play. Anyway, yeah, look for it on the, uh, on the uh, iPhone store, the iTunes store. So now there's no time pressure at all because all we did was we gave some people, you know, each person played rounds, the more points they earned, the more money they earned, but some people were given more blueberries and some people were given less blueberries. The form of scarcity here was just how well do you use each blueberry? And then again, we gave people the ability to borrow blueberries. And you find the same thing across all of these ways we have of doing it. Whenever you impose scarcity, people will borrow in that resource. It makes sense. You're so focused on answering this family feud question. You're really focused on it. You're like, you know what would really help right now? An extra second. You know what would really help right now? An extra blueberry. You know what would really help right now? An extra dollar. That essential feature of scarcity, tunneling, leads to borrowing. But of course, the poor and the rich do very different things besides borrow. So I want to talk about a few, other, a few other behaviors. And I want to argue the same logic I just described extends to those. But I need to fill in the blanks a little bit. So I'll give you some other behaviors focusing on poverty. So this is drug adherence. So I want to tell you a bit about this. This is diabetes medication. Um, I actually am at very high risk for diabetes, not just because I'm South Asian, but because my family has a long history of diabetes. Diabetes is a very, very, it's an awful disease. 
it operates, it operates in the following way. Because your body can't, the pancreas can't control the blood sugar levels in your body, it can mean that you end up having too much or too little blood sugar. Too little, you know and you notice immediately, so you'll end up like eating something or whatever. In the worst case, that leads to coma, but if you're a little aware, you can avoid the too little. The too much is where the real problem starts. Too much blood sugar, actually it feels kind of good even, because you're like, oh, what energy. But your body is deteriorating on the inside because sugar is corrosive. As a result, diabetes leads to a very particular form of death and complications. People go blind, people lose limbs. That's why drugs like these were amongst, besides antibiotics, were amongst the first wonder, wonder drugs. When these came out, it took this deadly, ugly disease and turned it into a manageable disease. All you had to do was take these pills or injections early on. Now the injection, many people don't need injections, you can even manage it with pills. And this deadly disease became a manageable disease. And with very little long-term effects on, on mortality or morbidity. <clears throat> the problem is these drugs aren't working. So I'll give you an example. In the US, about 100,000 limbs are lost every year to diabetes. That's a euphemistic way of saying we have to chop off limbs because of diabetes. About 100,000 people every year. It's a lot. So why aren't these drugs working? Now here I need a little biological detour. So just bring yourself back to basic microbiology. It turns out that in order for drugs to work, you have to take them. <laughs> would, you, would you have guessed that? <laughs> Who knew? And it turns out that drug adherence for diabetes is on the order of about 68, 69% across a lot of studies. And it's not like people aren't taking them because you know, they just don't take them at all. They buy them, but they just miss doses here and there. And this is not unique to diabetes. Pick any condition. HIV. If I had told you 20 years ago we were going to have a HIV, um, 25 years ago, we were going to have a, a, bring HIV to the point where it's actually now a total man, totally manageable disease, all you have to do is take drugs every day, a certain cocktail, you would have said, wow, that's amazing. Then if I told you, actually, but one of the big problems we have is nobody's taking them, you would have said, that's crazy. But that's what's happening. Drug adherence with HIV is a bit higher. It's on the order of in the mid-80s. The problem is diabetes is relatively linear. So sort of impact of the drug relative to adherence is about you know, linear. So 65%, you get about two-thirds of the benefit. HIV is not linear at all. It is very, very concave. So as a result, if you take 85% of your dosage, you're not getting 85% of the benefits. You're getting far less than 85% of the benefits. You see this problem every, in every disease category. Maybe the one that I find weirdest is... Um, when you get a kidney transplant, you know, you wait years to get, into, to get a kidney transplant. It's quite hard. You get on the list. Finally, you get a kidney. And now you have to take drugs to make sure you're immunosuppressant, to make sure your body doesn't reject this foreign organ that's sitting in there. And it turns out one of the biggest problems we have with, re with rejections of kidneys is drug adherence. People don't take their drugs. So much so that now people are wondering, maybe we should figure out who's going to and who's not going to take their drugs and actually use that as a screen for who should get a kidney. Think of how stark that is. Well, if you were to do that exercise, as people have done, people are interested in drug adherence and done lots of regressions, say you were to do it for kidneys, you were to do it for diabetes, you'd find across all of these studies, one variable is highly predictive of who's going to take their drugs. Can you guess what it is? The poor. The poor are much less likely to take their drugs. 
And it's a striking finding across all of these contexts. So let me tell you another example like this. This is um, parenting. There's a lot of studies of parenting that have now been done by sociologists and child psychologists that are actually pretty interesting. They'll do them in, in quite methodologically. They're fascinating. For example, some of these studies involve sending people to researchers to people's homes every day for months, and they'll sit in the corner and just take notes of the interactions. So they're now we're getting large, rich data. In my mind, they're like wearing white lab coats while they sit in the corner, but I don't think that's actually true, uh, though I hope they are. Um, and these researchers are taking meticulous notes on everything that's happening, and they will have now documented, kind of at least correlationally, and now with child psychology experiments, some notions causally of what makes for a good parent. So, for example, consistency of behavior is, is really important for being a good parent, meaning if you tell the kid one thing on one day, you should not tell the kid the opposite thing on the next day. That is a bad idea. You should not raise your voice just because you're frustrated. So you take all of these things, and these sociologists, they're pretty left-wing people, but in their research, they tend to find... I think left-wing means something different here. They're not <laughs> communists. I don't know what left-wing means here. Let me just say, I would use the word liberal, but again, that means something different here. Let's just say there are people who are pro-poor. Can we say that? Um, and what they found, though, in a lot of these studies is there is one variable that's pretty highly predictive of who's a good parent in these studies. You can imagine what that is. Not poor. The poor are just bad parents. So let's go to another context. This is work that I've done in, in India. This is a, a rice farmer. Uh, and this is actually a really, really nice field. When you walk down in India, you'll see this like you see in some countries. Large parts of Africa are not like this. But people have their plots of land right next to each other. So you can actually walk. And the villages are centralized. The plots are next to each other. So you can walk down uh, between fields. And you can actually see different people's fields. And it's striking because some fields are perfectly manicured. And some fields look like my office. You know what I mean? They're not that well taken care of. And in fact, they have weeds everywhere. Now, why is that interesting? Well, it turns out that if you were to go around the world and you were to say, I really want to help the poor, wouldn't it be great to have a, an agricultural invention, because a lot of the poor work in agriculture, wouldn't it be great to have an agricultural invention that really dramatically increased yields? And now we'll have you know, um, genetically modified seeds. We'll have all sorts of new organisms. Maybe we'll help them sell their plants at higher prices. We'll, you know, we really want to help these. Turns out there's one thing you can do that will really, really help these guys. It's this amazing technology. It's called weeding. If you weed your plot, it will increase your yield by about 25 to 30%. It's the oldest known technology. It's easy to do in some sense. But like I said, some people are doing it and some people aren't. And you can just mechanically see it. And it turns out there's a really good predictor of who weeds and who doesn't weed. That's right. Poorer farmers are much less likely to weed. What's funny is you can go on like this. It's not just borrowing that the poor do more of. The, there is some deep link between poverty and behavior. Pick anything, any domain. I've done agriculture, parenting, medicine, but pick anything you want. And in that domain, pick a behavior that you think is a, a good behavior, that has some high private returns. And you'll see some people aren't doing it. 
in nearly every domain that you look at, a good predictor of who's not doing it will be the poor. And you might be tempted to say, oh, that's because the poor don't have money and these things cost money. Well, weeding doesn't cost money. And in fact, the data I showed you about drug adherence, in the US, the poor are on Medicaid, and in Medicaid, drugs are free. It's hard to understand what generates this deep link between poverty and behavior. And I want to tell you that I think that one of the reasons this is happening, this fundamental link, is exactly that scarcity captures attention, and that that has a big consequence. And this is the biggest consequence, not just borrowing, but that this deep, deep link that poverty leads to bad behavior. So how can we do that? To do that, I want to walk you through a simple memory test. Do you guys, those of you who have pen and paper, play along with me. Enough of you look like you have pen and paper. So here's what I want to do. I am going to read a list of words, okay? And what I'd like you to do is I would like you to simply, I hope I can mute the screen, otherwise you will see, oh, why mute the screen, I'll do this. I would like you to simply listen to me. Oh, this part is important. Don't write down what I say. <laughs> it's a memory test for a reason. So just, if you have pen and paper ready, listen to what I say, and when I'm done, write down the words you remember. Okay? Can you guys do that? Please don't cheat. That, that would be awkward for all of us. Okay, are you ready? Here we go. Okay. Tired, snooze, blanket, slumber, snore, doze, wake, dream, nap, awake, rest, bed. Okay, write down what you remember. Someone back there is looking at their neighbor's answer. That's just, that's just wrong. It's a little bit like the bathroom. If it hasn't come out by now, it's not coming out. You guys, are you guys done? Yeah, all right. Good. Okay, here we go. Um, so... I'm going to read back the words to you, and we'll see how many of these you got. So let's start with bed. How many got bed? Oh, nice. How many got tired? Oh, pretty good. How many got dream? Pretty good. Slumber? Good. Sleep? That's great. So, so I'd say about a lot of these, about 50%, except for the words bed and tired, which a lot of you got. And the reason you got the word bed and tired is that I started here and ended here. This is a basic fact about these are the words. It's a basic fact about psychology, primacy and recency. The first word you heard, the last word you heard. There's also another really interesting fact about memory in this test. I think of it as probably the most interesting fact about memory that you can do in any large group of people easily. This test is called the DRM. And there's something fascinating about that list, that if you take a moment to look at it and you see the words on the right, you might notice something. Yes, how many of you got the word sleep again? Well, that is a fascinating fact. Because you'll notice something is not in the list of words I read to you. <laughs> in fact, you remember the word sleep at the same rate as you remembered the word slumber or dream. Isn't that interesting? 
At this point, you're probably thinking, that's not fair. <laughs> the real reason that this happened is because it's your fault, meaning me, because the word sleep should have been there. <laughs> I mean, it belongs there. It's a little bit like when you're talking to a friend and you say to your friend, remember that party you were at? And they were like, no, I wasn't at that party. Like, no, no, really, you were there, you remember? We had this conversation about tortilla chips, and they're like, well, I wasn't at that party, and your conversation sounds stupid. <laughs> and you keep arguing with your friend, but why do you make that mistake? Well, this is the reason you make the mistake. It's because the person should have been there. All the other people they're normally with were there. It's really their fault if you think about it. And it's really my fault for not including the word sleep on this list. This is because the brain is fundamentally associative. There is an associative network we have of concepts linked together. And that associative network is how our memory tends to operate. Memory is inherently reconstructive. Even if you take nothing else from this talk, I hope this teaches you to be inherently skeptical of your memory. Your memory is not a recording device. It's, this is not a mistake that your computer mistake, your computer would make in memory. It is an, a fat confabulation. It's a creation of something that was never there. And it happens because memory reconstructs. It just goes through and says, oh yeah, well, yeah this is what it felt like happened. Think about how profound that is. Your memory is really as much imagination as anything else. It's just structured imagination. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this because we ran this study with the poor and the rich. And you find the poor and the rich have very similar memory structure. This is a chance of falsely remembering the word sleep. And you find that the poor are about as likely to remember the word sleep as the rich falsely remember the word sleep. So, nothing interesting there. But if scarcity captures your attention, if it really creates this focus on a bunch of things, then fundamentally it ought to change your entire associative network. In some sense, you're living in a different world. So while these words all mean sleep for both us and the poor, think about this list of words, which we did. Rent, loan, phone, dollar, coin, gas, bills, expense, grocery, utilities, cash, pay. You give that list to the rich people, they hear the word grocery and you know what they think? They think, oh, yeah, I need to buy some milk. You hear the word bill and they think, oh, God, I got that bill. Deal. I, I, I got to remember not to forget to pay that bill. On and on. You know what the poor see when they see this list of words? Money. And in fact, if you give this list and you ask what is the percentage of people who falsely remember hearing the word money, which again is not on this list, you find the rich are never, to them it's, a, it's like a non-word. It's like one person remember that list. The poor remember, to them it's like sleep. This is a sense in which the dynamic process of simply constantly focusing reshapes the network that you're in. This is sort of a dynamic consequence. Let's play this forward, and I hope you'll understand why now some of the bigger consequences are starting now. So <clears throat> we gave this little vignette to people. We said, imagine that you're feeling sick lately and finally decide to go see a doctor about it. The doctor explains that you have a serious condition that requires immediate attention. The good news, however, is you are virtually guaranteed to make a full recovery. The doctor writes several prescriptions, and you'll need to make several appointments. Okay, that's the vignette with a little bit more color. That's what the dot, dot, dots are. More stuff happened there. Then we said to people, what would be on your mind or how would you feel as you hear this news? Different people said different things. For example, one person talked about, oh, their wife, their son, their coworker. 
Not sure how the wife and son feel about having the coworker on that list. <laughs> there were a lot of emotionally loaded words. For example, some people said they were scared, afraid, worried, some relief, hope, and joy, because while they were initially worried, now the thing is resolved. Interestingly, though, there was one set of words that appeared in some people, which is not on this list, which I'm wondering if you can imagine what that is. Which is some people said, how much will this cost me? In fact, if you just go through this and just ask how many people think about cost while the doctor is talking to them, a much bigger fraction of the poor are thinking cost. In fact, think of what this conversation is like to the doctor. The doctor thinks they're saying, good news, it's all resolved, all you have to do is take some drugs. And it then proceeds to tell them, here is the order in which you need to take the drugs, blah, blah. The poor person's like, oh, I wonder what this will cost me. I hope this sounds familiar. This is like the doctor is delivering a punchline while there's food on the scene. That reshaping the associative network, that potential for all sorts of everyday interactions to trigger thoughts about money and take us out of the scene, to prevent us from hearing the punchline, is what I want to tell you is the most profound reshaping and the most profound consequence of scarcity. And I'm going to show you that that actually happens. And to do that, I'm going to do one kind of fun study, and I'm going to do kind of two sad studies. But let's do the fun one first. So here's a word search we did. These are just sort of psychology-like studies. And in this word search, we asked people to say, find the word street. And no one ever listens to me until I actually show them where it is. So there it is. Now I've taken away the fun, sorry. But there's street. Then this thing clears, and then they're asked to find the next word, treat. They go on like this. And they do many of these word searches, and the more words they find in a fixed amount of time, the more money they earn. That's all the subjects are there to do, make money by finding words. It's a lot of fun. Now, for half the subjects, what we did was we replaced the word street with cake. We replaced the word picture with donut. We replaced each, every other word with a delicious word. Much like water, about this point, I wish I had a candy bar to eat, but I don't. Um, now, why do we do all this? We did all this because, take the word cloud. Some people are searching for the word cloud, having just searched for the word picture. Some people are searching for the word cloud, having just searched for the word donut. What we were interested in is, did it make a difference? Which word you just searched for? And it turns out, for a fraction of our subjects, it did not. But for the other fraction, it did. Can you picture what the two groups were? For non-dieters, no effect. But for dieters, a big difference. Much slower to find the word picture if they just search for donut. It's as if their mind was still on the donut. <laughs> this is like the punchline. This is like the people thinking about cost. Think of how small it is. We didn't put a real donut in front of them. We put the letters D-O-N-U-T. And now they're out of task. They're being much less productive just because we put the words D-O-N-U-T in front of them. Why is this important? All of this is important because in some sense it suggests there's a very primitive force that scarcity has. See, tunneling sounded good when you were trying to do the task on hand, like working on deadline. But imagine you have a deadline tomorrow, but your daughter has a football game. So you go to the daughter's football game, and you're sitting in the audience. What's that experience going to be like for you and for your daughter? 
probably she's going to come up after and say, why didn't you cheer when I had that goal? And you're like, oh, yeah. Oh. That's because you weren't really there. I mean, you were physically present, but your mind kept going back to, oh my God, I've got that project. Oh my God, I've got this thing. Tunneling becomes this incredibly deleterious activity if you're trying to do anything other than the thing that you're tunneling on. And of course, a lot of life is not money management. A lot of life is not time management. It's other stuff. And so what I want to argue today is that there's a core resource. Let's call it bandwidth. Like, like a computer, you have a fixed amount of cognitive capacity, cognitive resources. And if your mind keeps going to this other thing, you simply have less bandwidth to give to anything that you're working on. So if you go to talk to somebody and they're, say, poor, and their bandwidth is compromised because they keep thinking about poverty, they're going to look dumber to you. They're not dumber in some deep sense. They just have less bandwidth available because some of it is going away. It's like sitting down at a computer and you say, why is this computer so slow? And then you realize, oh, it's got this background process that's running, that's downloading a lot of files. There's a background process that scarcity creates that's constantly pulling you out. And this is important because bandwidth, some psychologists might call this cognitive load, <clears throat> has a lot of consequences. It is, and 50, 60, 70 years of studies have shown that cognitive load has effects on everything, from clear thinking to self-control to learning to memory to creativity, really everything, because that is cognitive. There is no part of your brain that is not going to be affected when I load you up. So if you believe what I've told you, that scarcity actually taxes bandwidth for the mechanism that we've already seen, then you ought to see why all of the behaviors that we're seeing follow kind of mechanically. The poor do worse at weeding, or more likely to forget to take their medication, or more likely to be worse parents, because their bandwidth is compromised. But what I need to now show you is that this is actually happening at a decent scale, which is what I'll do now. And to do that, I'm going to do, test two components of bandwidth. The first is a less interesting one, but it is probably the more important one. It's uh, fluid intelligence. This is a Raven's Matrix task. Easy way to test fluid intelligence, available capacity. You just say, what, which of these goes in there? Unlike the previous one, I can never remember which this is, and my fluid intelligence is low in the middle of the talk. So uh, I think it's four. Does that feel right? Yes? Oh, look at that. It's like a real-life IQ test, and I passed. <laughs> I think the MacArthur Foundation wants to take their money back. So that's the first test, and we run this on poor and rich, and I'll show you how we do it. The second test is something that's more to wake you up. This is the... A Stroop test. Have you guys ever taken a Stroop test? No? If you have, it's fun. So let's just do it together. I like doing this. this demonstrations are always fun. I'm going to put an object up. We've already seen memory. Let's just see your color identification skills. I just want you to say out loud with me the color that I'm putting up of the object. Ready? Now let's do it. Let's do it a little faster. Let's go. Red, green, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, right? This is, this is impulse control. When you hear about impulse control, you're like, oh, resisting cookies. Impulse control begins at a very primitive level. Impulse control begins at this level of milliseconds where you see blue. You see, part of your brain says, I know what that is. That's blue. And then you have to say, no, 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 no. Let's just calm down here. And that primitive level of impulse control is the other component of bandwidth, executive function. So what I want to show you is that both of these are compromised, and they're compromised, and that bandwidth effectively is... A, is these two components of bandwidth are affected by poverty. So how am I going to do that? I'm going to show you two studies. The first took place in a mall in New Jersey. That's what New Jersey, it's a state in the U.S. that specializes in malls. <laughs> and um, 
No, it's a great tourist attraction. You just go there. Malls are spectacular. And um, what you, um, what we did was we did the Raven's Matrix test on poor and rich, and we did the Stroop test on poor and rich. Here's what you find: poor, a little dumber than the rich. But of course, the lesson from the study I told you with the crosswords was that what we really want to do is to make the poor think a little bit about money, like putting a D-O-N-U-T in front of them. So we want to do the equivalent of, that, of this, the, the, the donut with the money. So we asked half the subjects, this is the half we didn't ask, but then we asked half the subjects, hey, John just had his car break down and needs $1,000. What are some of the ways John could get money? We're not asking people about their money. We're not asking them about anything. Just ever so lightly putting D-O-N-U-T in front of them. Now what happens, for that group, you see that their intelligence drops precipitously. Nothing happens to the rich, but the poor are significantly dumber. And the same is true of Stroop. Here, <clears throat> executive control is significantly lower even in the control, but we make them think about money, and they're much, much worse. So the effects that you saw earlier, and I'll tell you how big these effects are in a second, they seem to be translating in money that simply having less leads to lower bandwidth. But of course, that's not what I've shown you. I've shown you that if I go in and make people think about money, then they do worse. So what I really want to show you is without me there to mess around, the same thing is happening. That shouldn't be too hard given the other studies I showed you. After all, the whole point of the memory test, the whole point of some of that stuff was to show you that the world makes the poor think about money all the time. So let's see how we would show that. These are sugarcane farmers. And what we did was we used a natural experiment available to us here, which is that sugarcane farmers were both poor and rich at the same time. What do I mean by that? They get their harvest money once a year. And I'll tell you a story. When I was a, when I was a graduate student, Harvard had this <clears throat> very smart policy of paying me my entire stipend at the beginning of each semester. So what that meant was September was a very good month. <laughs> January, not such a good month. These sugarcane farmers are in the same bind, but at a more exaggerated level. The month after harvest, very good month. The month before harvest, very bad month. So the same farmer, poor before harvest, rich after harvest. So all we did in this study was we simply just measured their IQ before harvest and after harvest. We picked sugarcane farmers because they're actually well enough off and we can measure it. This has nothing to do with nutrition. They're not eating less. They're well enough off that calories and nutritional value aren't compromised. And what we found is, in fact, that pre-harvest on Raven's matrices, they're significantly dumber than post-harvest. And their ability to resist saying the word blue is much worse. Cognitive control. They say blue much more often. Make more errors. Takes them a longer time pre-harvest. All of these things point us to, the, to what I want to conclude on, which is that I think the biggest effect of scarcity is to tax bandwidth. And I say it's the biggest effect because while I've shown you directionality, I haven't told you numbers. So let me calibrate for you how big the findings that we have are. There's another group of psychologists who are sleep psychologists. And what they do is, a typical study they'll have is, they'll bring you guys into the lab and they'll say, thanks for coming. Here's a climate-controlled quiet, dark room for you to sleep in. And then say the other half, thanks for coming. Tonight you will get no sleep. You will sit at this desk, you can do whatever you want, but you cannot sleep. And in fact, I have a graduate student sitting next to you who if it looks like you're closing your eyes, will shake you awake. And that grad student's had a lot of coffee. 
Next morning, 9 o'clock rolls around. You guys, very relaxed, well slept. You guys, not so happy. And what do we do? Well, in some studies, they measure people's bandwidth after this. They measure their ravens, like exactly the elements I just showed you. And what you find is that people are much dumber after an all-nighter. You probably already know this. Uh, in fact, if you haven't learned this yet as undergraduates, this is probably the main thing that every undergraduate learns in their undergrad years. You, you are not nearly as smart at 5 a.m. as you think you are. <laughs> that term paper you turned in, don't look at it. It's really bad. It's so bad, by the way, this is an aside, but it's so bad that if you're ever on the road and you have a choice to be next to a drunk driver or a driver who has just pulled an all-nighter, choose the drunk driver every time. It's not even close. Simulators, where you put people in driving machines with the drunk driver, certain accident rate, all-nighter, those people are like, they're running into stuff and they're like, oh, this time I'm awake, I'll keep going. It's really not a good outcome. So that's a calibration, an extreme calibration. The numbers I showed you are about 75 to 80% of the effect of an all-nighter, which suggests it's as if the poor are pulling an all-nighter, but every day. And so what I think all this has taught me is that when I started thinking about being poor, I thought, yeah, like an economist, being poor means you have very little money. Now I've changed the way I think about being poor. I would say, yes, they have very little money, but the big problem is there's also very little bandwidth. And that that limited resource, that scarcity, is perhaps even more profound than the other one. It leads to many behaviors, it leads to many consequences, but, and this is where I'll conclude on, it's also the form of scarcity that we, I think, do a very bad job of managing. I'm going to show you some policy implications and then stop. So <clears throat> this is a, a policy implication for a form of scarcity having to do with time. About three years ago, I went to dinner with a, a bunch of friends, and it was amazing. The food was really good. The conversation was just, like, really hilarious. It was a lot of fun. I came back that evening, and I was thinking to myself, why was this so good? What was, the, what was the secret ingredient? It was the same friends who I often go to dinner with. They didn't suddenly mysteriously get more interesting. In fact, if anything, I've heard those stories before. And it was the same restaurant I've been to a few times. It wasn't that. What was it? It turned out that it wasn't about what ingredient was there, but what ingredient was not there. See, earlier that day, I had... Well, you can see what had happened to me earlier that day. I lost my cell phone. Kind of colorfully, actually. And what that meant was when I was at that dinner, I didn't have my cell phone on me. And reflecting on it, I realized it was the absence of my cell phone that made the dinner so interesting. Not because I would have spent the dinner on the cell phone, but because inevitably I have mail on my phone and during a break or no one was around or while I was waiting for people I would have checked my mail and inevitably there would have been some email from some RA or some project manager or something that's due or some project that needs attention and my mind would have gone to that. It's as if using the cell phone I am such a shitty bandwidth manager that I am putting D-O-N-U-T in front of me voluntarily before a time when all I want is bandwidth to just enjoy what I have. That's the sense in which I think we're very bad bandwidth managers for ourselves. We don't recognize that. But we are also extremely bad bandwidth managers as policymakers. What I've just told you is the poor have less bandwidth. 
Suppose I told you I have this great program, and it's really good for the poor. They just have to pay $500 up front. You'd say, didn't you hear they're poor? Like, what part of that did not parse for you? That is stupid. We, we wouldn't do that. But you know what we would do? We would say, I have this great program. Here is a 50-page booklet that you must fill out. We are willing to throw bandwidth taxes around and tax bandwidth, even though it is a highly regressive tax. It is a tax that has big consequences, disproportionately felt by the poor, but in every program we design, we don't account for it. When we do a conditional cash transfer, we say, look how well this program worked, and they do work well. On the other hand, do we keep track of how much conditions we're asking the poor to track? That's a hidden cost. That's an extra bandwidth tax. Every new condition we add to a conditional cash transfer is an extra tax on bandwidth. I think we're terrible managers of bandwidth. I think we're terrible managers of bandwidth in another way. I'll tell you the story from... World War II. I'm not some sort of World War II buff, uh, but these stories just happen to come from there. Uh, this is the B-17. This is the Flying Fortress. This is a, a bomber plane that was flown through World War. That was flown all the time during the war. Plenty of leg room. It's a really nice, roomy plane. What was happening with this plane was, at a time when we couldn't afford plane crashes, this plane was crashing a lot, and it was crashing in a pretty ridiculous way. Here's how it crashed. Pilots would come in for the descent just as they were about to hit the runway. They would retract the landing gear. Now, you can kind of picture that. In uh, aerospace engineering, that's called a bad idea because you need your landing gear. In fact, they retract it. The plane would go plowing into the ground. They'd lose the plane. Sometimes they'd lose the pilot. So they wanted to know, how the hell is this, do we fix this problem? So they brought in a psychologist, Lieutenant Chapanis, and they asked Chapanis to figure out what the hell was going on inside these pilots' heads. Why were they doing this? Chapanis did stuff, and then he had a profound realization, which is actually quite profound given that he was a psychologist. He said, you know what, I don't think, no, you'll see what the realization is. That's why I'm saying that. It's not because I, it's because he said, maybe a psychologist, but I don't think the problem is inside people's heads. I think it's somewhere else. So he decided to look inside the cockpit. This is, the B, this is actually the B-17 cockpit. You can't quite see it, but the switch for retracting the landing gear is right next to the switch for lowering the flaps and operates in exactly the same way, in the same direction. So you're a pilot, and you go to lower the flaps. That's a good idea. What might you do? you might accidentally do the other switch, which retracts the landing gear. The problem was not the pilot. The problem was we had designed an instrumentation panel that is particularly prone to human error. Chapanis fixed it. The problem went away. And in fact, Chapanis is a hero. If you look at most aviation crashes to today, we've had a dramatic decline in fatalities due to, due to airplane crashes. And most experts think about 80 to 100% of that decline is due to Chapanis' insight. Because engineers decided we need to make cockpits that are fault tolerant. We need to make cockpits that minimize the chance of error. That when there is an error, minimize the consequence of that error. It's a pretty crazy thing to think you can just accidentally flip a switch and retract the landing gear. We have done an enormous amount of cockpit engineering to make the, the plane fault tolerant. Now, fault tolerance is inherently something about bandwidth. It says, even with the best of intentions, you make mistakes because people have limited bandwidth. But I don't think our social policy is fault tolerant at all. I think our view of social policy is people make mistakes 
because they're not incentivized. Our solution to the B-17 fortress would have been, we just really need to make sure those pilots face strong incentives. I mean, give them a bonus for landing the plane right. Because life is probably not enough of a bonus. Errors, the very basic fact of error is not something we take into account. And what I would argue is, if we understand that the poor are bandwidth taxed, then that's the main thing we should focus on. Let me conclude on one thing. I have tried to hopefully give you different forms of scarcity as a bridge to help you see how the similar force is working. But I wouldn't want you to walk away thinking that the bandwidth tax is the same for the busy as for the poor. The forces are the same, but the way the forces aggregate up are not the same. For example, if you get really bandwidth taxed, you know what you might do? You might say, I need a vacation. You know what the poor can't do? They can't say, ah, oh, I'm really overwhelmed by all this poverty stuff. I'm going to take a break from being poor. A week, two, I'll be back on my feet. They can't say, what I really need is more work poverty, I mean, poverty life balance. This poverty thing is really taking over my life. That is, different forms of scarcity have optionality to them. Time has optionality. Diets, very similar forces. But you can always give up on a diet. The only other form of scarcity that I've encountered that has the same relentlessness as poverty, and there's some evidence of a bandwidth tax there, is actually a very sad form of poverty, which, uh, scarcity, which is loneliness. It's a form of social poverty. It's a form where people are constantly thinking about you know, friendship and like, how will I meet someone, how will I meet people. And that's a form where you also can't take a vacation from being lonely. It has a similar relentlessness. And there you find a similar bandwidth tax. So let me conclude on that. And I hope I've given you a sense of the impact of scarcity, but also a sense of the variety of the different forms of scarcity. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we might have time for maybe just a couple of questions. Would that be all right? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, okay. If there are a couple of questions, I'm happy to take them. Yeah. Hi, I've, I've seen occasionally people uh, sort of misunderstand what you're trying to say and, and think that you're trying to say that poor people are stupid when that's not at all, of course, what you're trying to say. I was wondering, since you've written the book, what response you've had from poor people themselves to it, whether people say, yeah, I recognise this and I see what you're saying, or whether you've had reactions from them. I have to say, the thing that, the thing that really was probably the most... The thing that was probably the most emotional moment for me after the book was... The Guardian wrote a very nice piece about it. And I did the one thing that you should never, ever, ever do, which is I went to the comment section. <laughs> that is not a place you want to go alone. <laughs> and I went to the comment section, and it was very uh, eye-opening to me how many people there posted of the type saying, I was once very poor, or I am going through poverty right now, and this really helps me understand what I've been experiencing. That made me feel, and I've gone through times when I was poor, and it helped me understand. But that notion of personal understanding, I felt reson resonated with many people. Some people said, this is something I live with every day. At least now others will understand it. But some people said, I understand my own behavior differently now. And that made me feel quite, I mean, it just it made me emotional. There were some questions up there. Yeah, and then 
Hi, um, I'm from Occupy London, and I must say, you've made me feel even less hopeful than um, no Occupy movement, as in Wall Street. I think you probably know about them from the States. Um, basically, the question is, so why, if we know this stuff, is it that the poor are always the ones that are most taxed in every which way? and challenged, and so on and so on. Because, you know, it's like in this country right now, God knows, I could be here all day when I tell you how the poor are going to be kicked in the arse in a really, really big way. I mean, really, there have been deaths, suicides, it's getting worse and worse. I mean, you know, we're back, we're in the States now. If not, I would say worse in some areas. So the question is, why is it that human beings who understand... I mean, you know, this wasn't really rocket science. I think my seven-year-old understood most of what you were saying today. Um, she's tired, so she's got a bit frustrated now. But why is it we... we um, you know, so why do we make it more difficult? If people are actually suffering, you kind of made me think we really are the sadists that... It's I, yeah, I think I would say that... and uh, You might think I'm being naively optimistic, but I think that... There is a, a tendency that we have when we work with poverty, which is a sympathetic tendency, that we are sympathetic. And I think for me, the personal translation in doing this work is to move from sympathy to empathy. I think sympathy is a distancing emotion. Sympathy is an emotion where we feel this group is experiencing bad things and we feel bad for them. Empathy is the ability to, at least in some small way, understand their behavior. And I think there is a, 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 a clash of beliefs in some sense. And I think the clash of beliefs is that there's a group of people who I think have not yet tried to see it from the perspective of being poor. And I think by not seeing it from the perspective of being poor, when you look at it from the outside and you look at all of these behaviors, you say, these people are really just, don't have their act together. It's their fault. And I think it's very easy to look at the behavior and conclude that it's their fault. I think by seeing it from the inside, you can understand how you yourself might do this many times. And so my, my subversively political hope, and that's why instead of just focusing on poverty, because that's where a lot of our results are on, I focus on scarcity, is I'm hopeful that people will be able to extrapolate from their own experiences of scarcity in some domain, like the busy. Like I gave this talk to a bunch of hedge fund managers, and they resonated with this because they resonate with the story of working on something on deadline and having something on their mind and having their bandwidth taxed and screwing up. And so I'm hopeful that the empathetic response will change the political discussion so that we, at least in some small way, move from saying those people are bad people, those people are screw-ups, to saying those are natural consequences. And those things can take time, but that would be my sort of optimistic hope. I think we should take one more question and then we'll stop. Yeah. Uh, um, thank you very much for the talk. So it looks like, I mean, what, everything you said, disguised it looks like a like all-encompassing, very intuitive theory that seems to explain lots of things. And you express your frustration with policymakers uh, overlooking it in a way. And uh, we know that like, policymakers listen to what economists say, and uh, especially when it's in the model and it can explain human behavior. I've never seen any mod economic model that uh, incorporates scarcity. Do you have any plans to do that? Or maybe it's something that I didn't see? Like, why do we don't see it in 
these like standard or behavioral economics, economic models, this theory? Sorry. I think it's because this research is quite new, mm. and so writing a model is one of my students is working on that. Though I would argue that it's not the model that we're lacking at this point. I think the reason, what this has taught me as a pragmatic matter, is that the things that are measured are often accounted for. The thing that I would say is the first order of business is just to measure bandwidth much more. We don't measure it. We do a conditional cash transfer. We measure effects on behavior, effects on income. We should also measure bandwidth because the CCT may be taxing bandwidth and seeing other effects. Other programs may be improving bandwidth. I mean, in some sense, I think it's just that we didn't think, even though this is off the shelf for psychology, I don't think this is something that we've spent a lot of time carefully measuring. And I think that's where we'll see probably the biggest and quickest changes. Okay, thank you all. Thank you very much. <laughs>